You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Some erotic poetry that you wrote at age 12. I mean, you just hope that the thing you wrote isn't shit. I just felt the animal urge, which makes me want sex. Putting your own stuff out there that no one else would buy because of the internet and because of good cameras getting cheaper. And to live out my sexual desires. I loved that show. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest has such a relatable on-screen persona. Her fans, like me, feel like she's a friend that we just haven't met in real life yet. Rachel Bloom is a comedian, an actor, a writer, a singer, a dancer, and an all-around incredible performer who created, produced, and starred in the TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on The CW, for which she earned a Golden Globe and a Critics' Choice Award and an Emmy. She's currently working on the music and lyrics for The Nanny, which will open on Broadway once COVID lets up and we're all allowed to have fun again. And her hilarious book of essays, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, just came out November 17th. The book is so funny, and I cannot wait to talk to her all about that and so much more. Welcome, Rachel, to our show. Yay! Thank you for having me. Yay! (laughs) You really... You made such a splash in pop culture when Crazy Ex-Girlfriend came out in 2015. I remember Ooh. it so vividly that, like, suddenly everyone was was talking about you. Everyone was like, you have to watch the show. The show is the best. I'm sure you worked very hard to become an overnight success like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would love it if you could give me the story of where you're from and what your journey was like oh. becoming the musical maven that we all know <laughs> and love today. Well, first of all, the fact that everyone was telling you to watch the show is very indicative that, uh, you live in New York, um, because, (laughs) because I mean, it's really what we're talking about is, uh, a certain parts of LA, certain parts of New York, certain parts of Chicago, and then you get little pockets here and there in the the world. Yes, exactly. Um, my journey, um, started as a musical theater gal, uh, segued into sketch comedy, figured out how to combine the two sometime after that. I was doing stuff online. I was doing these music videos and I was also a working TV writer. And then I got uh, discovered, Aline Brosh McKenna, with whom I uh, co-created Crazy X, uh, found my music videos and she is a huge deal. She wrote The Devil Wears Prada. We bought a zoo, 27 dresses. She's a huge, huge deal. Um, They'd been trying to get her to do TV for a long time. And she was like, no, 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 I don't do TV. And she saw my stuff and was like, let's do a musical TV show together. And we basically met on this blind date uh, from her discovering me. And we created a crazy ex-girlfriend. And there's so much more, but that's the bare bones of it. I love it. And it all happened. I love it when like women see other women Mm -hmm. doing stuff that they love in the world and reach out and collaborate and make shit happen. That's just like my favorite thing to hear about. And Aline's really, really great with doing that. I've learned a lot about her, about reaching out to people, um, about 
you know, never assuming anyone's too busy or doesn't want to work on a thing. I, 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 she, she does this for other people and it's really cool. When I was reading up on your earlier career before Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I saw that after college you were working, you were doing work at Upright Citizens Brigade and you were roommates with Ilana Glazer who went on to create Broad City in Brooklyn. Correct. Um, I just think it's so amazing to think of you two both starting out together and then you both going on to create these really groundbreaking series that are considered very feminist, that women especially respond to and love. Can you tell me about that time in your lives together? Well, I wasn't, I feel like I actually wasn't in the apartment a ton because that's when I started dating my now husband. So I was at his apartment a lot. Um, actually in my book, there is a, an apologetic ode to my former roommates, um, and I changed names, but she's included in my apologetic ode. I'm a weird roommate. I'm <laughs> messy. I, um, especially, I think I'd be a better roommate now that I'm older than 22 and also on Prozac, uh, and have dealt with a lot of my issues, but I was a, I think I was just like a weird roommate. I slept at weird hours. I would tell her and my other roommate to be quiet at weird hours. Um, so I, we, we definitely got along. I just think I was probably really weird to live with. I think that what connects me and Alana is that she and I started doing UCB around the same time. We're the same year in college. And she and I both never made it onto a UCB house team. Hmm. Uh, so we started doing our own work as a way to like, well, I'm not going to get on a house team, so I'm going to start doing my own thing. And she started making the web series Broad City when we started living together. And I remember that because she had to borrow my tap shoes. There's an episode <laughs> of Broad City in which she taps and she's like, do you have any tap shoes? And I was like, do I? <laughs> um, and the answer is I do. Uh <laughs> And we were, but it was great. We were the same size. So we would, we would borrow each other's clothes. I remember she had this pair of shoes I borrow. And then I had this one blouse she'd borrow all the time. We were the exact same bra size at the time. I, um, I since have gained some weight while she has stayed a little more svelte. Um, so I don't think we could exchange clothes now. Uh, and then we started cycling together cause I was on a birth control. She snapped to my cycle. So that was fun. <laughs> I love when that happens. But, you know, I think we were the same year at NYU and NYU, you kind of feel um, it's not a school that like facilitates community. You have to find your own community because it's so big. Your campus is New York City. So it's very easy to feel swallowed up. It's very easy to feel, I think, depressed because um, it's not like going to like a, a cozier liberal arts school. So she and I, I think both come from this idea of like, I'm going to have to find my own way and and forge my own path. And we're the same, we're the same year. So I think we're also part of this generation of comedy where moving into a more uh, empathetic comedy style, I guess, for lack of a a better way of saying it, that we, um, there's this comedy style very much set by like, for lack of a better way of saying it again, like the straight white guys where you feel like you have to be like, Hey, what's up? (laughs) <laughs> my name's Brad, you know, uh, dick, 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 dick. And I think she and I were coming up as the culture of comedy was changing and it was, and also the internet made, took away the gatekeeper. So it's like, oh, I can just create my own shit and I don't have to wait for permission from a theater to say I can be on a team or, um, someone to buy a TV pitch. I can just start putting stuff online. So I think that we have, it's not as much that we inspired each other while we were living together. I think it's that we come from very similar circumstances. And the way we met was we were in the same improv class. I think we were in improv 201 together. 
I love that. I love that you were coming up together in this specific moment in time when you didn't need someone to give you permission. I think that's what created this sort of golden age of feminist TV that we're experiencing. Yeah. And if you think about it, Broad City, I mean, my show, looping it in, Issa Rae, Issa Rae started by doing her own shit. Um, there, there is this ease of more of an ease of putting your own stuff out there that no one else would buy because of the internet and because of cameras getting cheaper, good cameras getting cheaper. Mm -hmm. So I think the, like, you know, the Canon 5d, the Canon 7d (laughs) shouldn't be understated in this. Shout out to gear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would, I would love to talk about the impact uh, crazy ex-girlfriend had continues to have on popular culture. For those unfamiliar with the show, I'll just give the quick rundown. It was a romantic musical comedy series. It ran for four series on the CW from 2015 to 2019. Uh, you start as Rebecca Bunch, who was brilliant, who's a, a Harvard-educated lawyer who very impulsively, in the first episode, moves from New York City to West Covina, California, <laughs> um, after she runs into her old summer camp boyfriend on the street in New York. She runs into him. He's so dreamy. He says he's moving back home to California and she just picks up and goes. Um, The show's title very flippantly refers to your character as a crazy ex-girlfriend. But the series picked up a huge cult following because it's very frank and open about discussing mental illness, not just of Rebecca Bunch, but of, you know, like other supporting characters as well. There's a huge demand for live performances once uh, you and the cast started touring with music from the show. There's soundtrack albums. People are still watching the show online all the time because you did such an amazing job, you know, not only of being incredibly entertaining, but of destigmatizing mental illness, making people all over the world, like me, including me, feel so much less alone. Um, I would love to hear more about what your experience has been with your fans. I assume during those live shows, you were finally able to meet the people who have been connecting with you so deeply at home and hearing their stories in person. What was it like to finally like go out and see who was on the other side of the camera? You know, it, it's amazing. Um, uh, and I write, I write about this actually in, in, in the book about how it, it was cathartic because when you're vulnerable in the ways that all of us who wrote Crazy X were, you worry like, is this going to register? Is this going to make sense? Am I the only person who's ever felt these things? And so when you write something vulnerable and that specific thing connects with like huge amounts of people and then you experience that live, especially like, you know, you're in front of a crowd of thousands of people and everyone's singing a song along with you. And then you meet Mm -hmm. people after the show and people are saying the same thing over and over. Oh, I, I have depression. I was diagnosed with borderline. My, my mother tried to commit suicide. I mean, like all, all of these incredibly vulnerable things. It, 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 I think the most striking thing was putting out vulnerability and getting back more vulnerability was, and is special and intense and unique. Um, and our fans are the best. They're just all really smart self-aware people. I haven't really had like a bad fan interaction. I just, I don't know. I trust the fans because, um, 
Uh, I mean, I still maintain, I don't put my address online, but, but because if you're a fan of the show, chances are you're therapized and you're self-aware. <laughs> there's just a trust there of like, the second I meet someone and they're like, will you sign my like antidepressant or like my antipsychotic <laughs> bottle? <laughs> there's awesome. a, there's a like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, there's, I don't know. There's just, um, there's a shared experience there and it's, it's wonderful and beautiful. And like so much of the stuff that we were, um, doing, it's just unbelievable because the show ended in last episode aired in April, 2019. And then in May, 2019, we performed at radio city music hall. And then in June we performed at the palladium. And then I toured around a bunch in late 2019 with some of my crazy ex castmates who would jump in. And it's almost like we knew something was about to happen with all of the partying we did all of the live performance. And, and I mean, on a very somber note, We've lost three people this year in our family. Um, a gentleman who worked in catering was killed mm. by shooting, first of all. Um, uh, just yesterday, uh, Tommy Marquez, who was not only in the costume, the wardrobe department and was my dresser, um, he's also in the last episode of the show. He's dressing me on stage in the live special. He passed away from cancer yesterday. I'm so and sorry. Then, um, thank you. And then, and then of course, uh, my writing partner, Adam Schlesinger, with whom I and Jack Dolgen won an Emmy, uh, died of COVID. And wow. so it's this insane, we were just celebrating with these live performances Um as if we knew something was going to happen. And it's not that long ago. No. We're talking, this is a show that ended a year and a half ago. Yeah, it's basically whoa. a very current show, but already so much has changed. So, yeah. so anyway, I'm just, I'm happy that uh, I got to do all these live performances with the show. And, and we were kind of carping that DM because we were like, we don't know when we can get this cast together again. We don't know when we can kind of like, you know, use the show title to get these huge audiences again. But the fact that the last time, one of the last times I performed with Adam was in London for this screaming crowd of people. And then afterwards I did this meet and greet where I was hugging people. I mean, I really was like in people's faces. People were kissing me on the cheek. I mean, it was the most like COVID dangerous thing that now we won't have for quite some time. Um, it just makes it all the more special. I wanted to tell you about, um, there's a feature story in the winter issue of Bust, which has not come out yet. So this is a sneak preview Whoa. of the winter issue of Bust that's coming out. But there's a really wonderful um, personal essay in that issue from a woman who um, realized that she was on the autism spectrum at 31 and one of her tells that um, that sort of tipped her off that she was cognitively different was that she would go on dates and start talking about crazy ex-girlfriend and would not be able to stop. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> she was so obsessed with the show and connected to it so deeply and loved it so single mindedly that it, she couldn't stop. She found it very difficult to talk about anything else. And so now she has like this, like she's learned not to bring it up on dates at all. 
<laughs> like even if people so ask her what her favorite show is <laughs> she's like i can't even get started no i was watching it the other day uh on election day uh-huh. because four years previous i'd been on set for the night donald trump was elected because i was in every scene and it's like shooting stops for no one um and I was watching the episode we were filming and I was watching the scenes we were filming that night. And I haven't, I hadn't watched an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I mean, since the series finale aired. And it was the Santa Ana Wins episode, if you know it. And I was like, this show's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that night I, I have, I've had recurring dreams for a while about the show coming back and having, and doing a fifth season. And sometimes it's a nightmare where it's like, wait, we're doing a fifth season, but we ended the show. We, we, we had Rebecca. We don't know. We ended the story. And then sometimes it's a positive dream. And I just, my, my subconscious clearly wants to be like making it again. My subconscious misses it. And it's weird that even if we went back and we went, you know what, we're doing five more seasons. We'll make it work. It would be the same because we're already missing people. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Yes. Yeah. Ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Um, has this experience of going out into the world and, and having this outpouring of connection and support and love for the show, has that experience changed how you view your own mental health struggles? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 to, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it just makes it so much more common. You see stuff online or someone has this and you talk to a few friends, but when you really meet people who've gone through this and also gone through things that are, that are, um, worse and, and more harrowing than my own personal story. I personally have never had a suicide attempt. I personally do not have borderline personality disorder. And so it's one thing to write a, 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 a show about this. That is, uh, that, that, it, that is, Parts of it are based on myself and parts of it are based on people we've met and parts of it are just things that came up organically as we were writing the character. But to meet people who've been through so much, um, yeah, it just makes you feel, it all makes you feel less alone, which is, which is like a big theme of also what I talk about in the book. I go through my own personal mental health history and I was just talking to a friend who, uh, I didn't know this, but, um, their OCD, they they have OCD and their OCD took a very, very similar form that mine did when it started when I was age 11 with this idea of intrusive thoughts. And it's just, yeah, the more you share about yourself, the more other people will feel, will feel safe sharing back to you. And in turn, you're like, oh, oh, I was never alone in this. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, I, I didn't know because I was keeping it all inside. I'm so glad you brought that up. That, that segues perfectly into what I wanted to talk about next. While the show depicts a fictional person with mental health struggles your new book of essays it's called i want to be where the normal people are it removes that fictional veil and with that same super funny totally approachable tone that the show had you tell readers the real stories and experiences that you've had with mental illness i want to know what made you decide to take that next big step and go public with the real you behind the character well, I thought, what do I have to say? I have this book deal because I'm on television and that's what happens because life is inherently unfair when it comes <laughs> to actors getting everything they want. And I firmly believe that because I have the experience of being not only both a writer and an actor, but a songwriter and an actor. Mm. Songwriters have no rights. Uh, <laughs> um, but 
so I got this book deal and then I, I, I started thinking about, okay, well, what do I want to say? What do I want to put out in the world that I, that I, that I'm not going to be otherwise putting out in my live shows or any TV or movies I want to pitch. And the answer was these stories and then these very personal stories and then extrapolate kind of comedic extrapolations on those personal stories. So the book is, it's a personal essay and then it'll go into almost like a, a sketch or like a piece of comedic prose, like based on the emotions of that essay. So there's like the first part is all about bullying and it's a real story of how I was bullied in middle school. And then the next thing is a real guide of how to defeat your bullies. And obviously it's not a real guide, but, um, it's like, you know, a list of all of the ways you can get revenge on your bullies. And so similarly to crazy X, when you kind of burst into song based on scenes in this book, I kind of burst into sketches and actually sometimes song based on like my own life. Yeah. I- I'm so we're speaking to you at such an interesting moment in that whole process because you've written the book, you've put it out there in the world. A few select media people like me have read it, but the world hasn't actually gotten its little hands on it yet. They will have by the time this episode drops. Um, So we're in this special sort of liminal space where you've put it all out there and now you're waiting to see what happens. Do you have any expectations around that? What's it like? I mean, you just hope that the thing you wrote isn't shit. <laughs> it's not shit. And Come luckily, on. And luckily, well, but you know, you know, and so luckily uh, people, people who've gotten advanced galleys have uploaded what they've have started putting on Goodreads, what they think of the book. So it's like, okay, not everyone is like, people are not saying this book is shit. You know, you, you want that baseline uh, yeah. you have that baseline right. expectation. Um, and then it's the world's. Without seeming like, um, and then it's the world's. Um, <laughs> but I'm interested to see what people take from it and hearing the stories that other people have that may be inspired by the stuff in the book. This is the fun part. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you my favorite part if you yeah, want to hear it. Please. Well, aside from the fact that you say your favorite movie is Todd Salanza's Welcome to the Dollhouse, because, yes. oh my God, I'm, I am Wiener Dog and I'm obsessed with that movie. Um, I, I, love when you dip into your childhood diary and reveal some erotic poetry that you wrote at age 12. If you don't mind, I'm going to share it with our listeners now. Oh my now. God, I'm so excited to hear someone else read this erotic poetry. I'm really <laughs> Just excited. a song. I'm going to give it my all. All right. So here's some erotic poetry written by Rachel Bloom at age 12. All right, here we go. Us. Wrapping our arms around each other, kissing passionately. Slowly, I come towards you. You wrap your hands around my waist, silently but yet as closely, my arms on your shoulders, gazing into your eyes. Suddenly, you stop, bend forward and kiss me. I return the kiss Our mouths slowly open. We kiss passionately now. Our tongues touch. Our arms and hands are involved. Love encased in lust and passion in this moment and many more on this night forever by Rachel Bloom. And then there's there's just a little addendum afterwards written on August 12th, 1999. It says... 
I've never written that sexually before. I just felt the animal urge, which makes me want sex <laughs> and to live out my sexual desires. Um, <laughs> I, so I love that you wrote that. I'm blushing right now. You're <laughs> that out loud. That was the literal best that not only did you include that in the book, but you actually like included a photo of the actual diary page so we could see the handwriting. We could see the line breaks. Yeah, I, I loved it so much. This totally gave me like a Tina Belcher of Bob's Burgers, like erotic friend yeah. fiction. Oh, absolutely. Like her drawings of butts. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it just, it highlights another aspect of what made Crazy Ex-Girlfriend so great to me. Like the open yeah. discussion of female sexuality, not just yours, but all the women on the show. Everyone gets horny. Everyone does weird stuff in response to that horniness. And it's just met with really like uh, feminist sex positive feedback from the other characters for the most part. Like as a fellow Jewish woman, I'm just... I marvel at it. I wonder how you got through childhood without hangups because obviously you were feeling very free in your mind and body at, at 12. Like, I mean, but tell- I wasn't. Go on. Sorry. It's written so well and it's very vivid. You're a woman who is, is not yet doing it but knows what she wants when she gets there. <laughs> like, just tell me about being a sex-positive creator from the earliest of ages and how like you actually parlayed that into a very successful brand well the weird thing is i discuss in the book that some of my ocd was from like sex guilt which makes no sense because i was otherwise raised to be very sex positive i i just i don't know my parent it wasn't a big deal my parents never told me it was a stork they always told me that adults have sex i, I remember i got a book when i was like five four kids about how the how sex happens, which was like a, um, like animals on the safari. And it was like showing two giraffes, like a giraffe on top of another giraffe and seeing a little sperm shaped like a giraffe go into an egg. I don't know. It just wasn't, um, it was, it was not a big deal, but at the same time I was really horny. It's almost like the two things are unrelated in that, like I was horny and it seemed like this mystical thing. And I didn't, lose my virginity super early. I lost it in my sophomore year of college, which is not early, not late. Um, but it felt like it, I had been wanting sex for, for longer. Uh, and, and actually part of the reason I waited was because I, I understood the repercussions. I think I, I understood that I could get pregnant, that it was going to hurt. Um, and so because it was it was always like I was always educated about it, I I took my time with it, which is not an indication of like how horny I was. <laughs> which, is why, which is why and also I grew up in a I had the good fortune to go to a really good public school system that had really good sex ed. Mm. And it's just, I mean, it's look, I could rant forever about the idea of your if people who are anti-abortion wanting then people to learn less about <laughs> how to not get pregnant. <laughs> like, you know, oh, well, it, anyway, I, it's just a, it's, it's one of the most evil contradictions, I think, um, in this country. Um, because I, I have always felt very sexually empowered and demystified and responsible because I learned about it. Mm-hmm. Just for the record, I am still waiting for my mom to tell me about sex. 
I'm now 45 years old. Janet, if you're listening, I'm ready for the talk. Anytime you want to explain it to me, I'll be here. I'm ready to listen. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's got to be hard. It's got to be really weird yeah. and hard. Yeah. And I don't know how – I have a baby now. I don't know how – I mean, I have a little bit of time. But, like, when she starts to ask me, I – yeah, I guess I'll just be honest and say, well, you know, there's different parts. And sometimes the parts – do things to other parts and they're, I'm very articulate as you can see. <laughs> yeah. When a man and, and a woman or a woman and a woman or a man and a man or whoever love each other very much, they give each other a special hug, a special hug. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so right before COVID hit, it was announced that the 1990s sitcom, the nanny was being developed into a Broadway musical and everyone with good taste freaked out because <laughs> Fran Drescher is on board to write the show's book and you are on board to work on the music. I need to know what the status of the project is. Um, all of Broadway is on hold. What can you tell us about the show and when we can actually see it? Well, first of all, unfortunately, uh, Donald Trump and Bill de Blasio murdered my writing partner. Um, uh, such a weird way to say it. Uh, but it's not untrue. Not untrue. Um, not untrue. So that's, a, that's a snag. Um, uh, otherwise, it's going well. Damn. I had basically, I mean, it's just bizarre because I had written lyrics for the first act. I had gotten most of the first act done. I had, I had worked on some numbers with Adam, but for the most part, it was me working in a bubble and then me kind of sending the songs off to Adam to be like, now you do a pass. Because Adam was going to do the bulk of the music. Um, mm. Adam could do everything. He could he could do it all. And so the way that we were divvying up work on this was I would kind of do the first pass of every song and then kind of give it over to him. And then he and we would go back back and forth. And so... I had banked all these songs for him to work on. So it, it was going well. Like we had these act one songs kind of rough, uh, lyrics done. And then he was starting to really work on the songs. And he, I mean, a day before in retrospect, I found out he, this was a day before he started having symptoms. Um, he sent the opening number, his take of the opening oh my number. God. That's terrifying. Uh, and it's great. It's oh really God. good. And he played that for his partner uh, while he was driving upstate to get away from COVID. And then the next night he started getting symptoms. So it's great. That opening number is great. Um, we're, you know, back in process. I'll have to eventually find a new collaborator. Um, we're, we're still working on, you know, doing notes on the songs, working on um, the second act uh, we're, you know, in process, but that was obviously a major, a major holdup. Yeah. Are you working at all closely with Fran Drescher? Yeah, I had been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool because she's the, um, she's really in, in so many ways, what's cause it's, it's being written by her and her ex-husband, Peter Jacobson, with whom she created the nanny and he show run the nanny. Um, and they were married, you know, for, they were high school sweethearts and then they were married for years and then they got divorced and he's like, Oh, also I'm gay. Um, which she created another show about that, but I'm writing with both of them. And it's interesting cause she just, she really is still very emotionally in touch with the character Fran Fine after all these years. 
And so that's kind of the emotional heart and rock of the show. Is she the best? Because I really want her to be the best. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. She's, she's awesome. Everybody knows her from the nanny, but I'm so obsessed with her performance in This Is Spinal Tap. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, like, I run around doing my Bobby Fleckman impression all the time, if you want to hear it. It's Let's just, it. hello, fellas. That's very good. That's my that's my <laughs> Bobby Fleckman. But I just, like, I just, I can't, I can't get enough of her in that movie. But I just, I just want her to be the best because. She is. I, she, she, um, she, she's one of those people who, when I first met her, I was surprised that she didn't walk into the room in a leopard print. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. She was, she was just like in yoga pants and a blouse, like, and she was just, you know, curled up on a couch being a person. But, be, but she is one of those people who, when she, you know, turns it on, she's this in, instantly iconic. Yeah. Um, you, you brought up some elements of this question already. And, and I just wanted to circle back to it now. I I think most people I know have been really been through a lot since March, but you especially have had such a truly emotionally rigorous year. You talked about your friend and collaborator, Adam, who you won your Emmy with last year for songwriting. You talked about him passing away from coronavirus in March. And I don't know if if, um, everybody knows that sort of at the same time, you were in the NICU after giving birth during a pandemic to your first child, you wrote on Instagram, having a baby in the NICU during a pandemic while a dear friend is in the hospital 3,000 miles away made this by far the most emotionally intense week of mine and my husband's lives. As the lovely doctors and nurses helped my daughter get some fluid out of her lungs, we watched the maternity ward around us change hourly to prepare for the upcoming COVID storm. Um, you know, we're now, we're preparing for another storm. I wonder what your reflections are on that time now that a few months have passed. And um, especially as someone with pre-existing mental health conditions, like we, I think at the end of this, every single person in America is going to have pre-existing mental health <laughs> conditions. Um, just what, how are you feeling about that time now? And how are you feeling about the months to come? Well, I'm glad it's over. I mean, I, when I think about the intensity of emotion and the trauma of that time, um, it, there were times where it felt truly overwhelming and like unsustainable. Um, it was really, really, really hard and terrible. Uh, but I, I'm, I mean, first of all, I, I'm glad to talk about it because I had done so much research about pregnancy I had every book on pregnancy. I had a book on, I knew a type of birth plan I wanted. I had done so much research. And the one thing I hadn't researched was the NICU. Mm. Or what happens if your baby ends up in the NICU and all of the things that can happen? Mm. Because I'd had a very complication-free pregnancy. And I just assumed it wouldn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. What's the and NICU? Don't even. Neonatal oh, the- intensive care unit. Oh, so it's the, you know, ICU for, for uh, baby okay. babies. Yeah. Um, and so you, what it looks like is you walk in and there are a bunch of incubators with babies, uh, hooked up to IVs. It's, uh, one of the most intense places you can be in the world. The people who work in the NICU are angels. <laughs> and especially as I watched them, 
getting used to the, cause every day there were these changing COVID regulations. So at first it was a uh, husband and wife can't be in the NICU at the same time to visit their child. So my husband and I weren't together with our baby until five days after she was born and we took her home. Uh, um, and then it was like, well, we can only have certain amounts of people in the NICU at one time. Um, and then it was just the, the, the regulations for them kept changing and they're dealing, I mean, you're, they're dealing with these tiny, tiny, tiny little creatures who don't know what's happening. And, and it's just some of these little babies in the NICU, they have, um, jaundice, you know, they're born with like yellow skin. And so they have to be under these like intense, what looks like sun lamps. And so they have goggles on, it looks like they're getting, they're on like these little baby tanning beds. But, um, it's just, I had no idea what it was. And then I went through it. And so I think it's important to talk about so that anyone out there who has a kid knows that this is a possibility. And, and it was what helped during that time is we'd sent out the birth announcement that my daughter was born and people wrote back saying, my kid was in the NICU. or I was in the NICU. And, and every time we got an email saying, oh, I, this happened to me, it made us feel better because no one tells you how common it is. And someone phrased it well, where it's like, it's not like there's something between the baby sleeping in your room and then the NICU. There's just the NICU. So if there's anything wrong with your baby, it's going to be the NICU. And it's actually very common. I think it's something like 10 to 15% of babies end up in the NICU for one thing or another. So that's, I think that's why it's, um, I was talking to Aline about this and she was like, it's important for you to talk about because you had no idea this was a possibility. And I didn't, Yeah, I, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that it just could suddenly, if enough fluid doesn't get expelled from the lungs during, you know, childbirth, like this can be a problem. Um, so yeah, it was, but you know, you give birth to this little baby and then you see her hooked up to tubes it's, and IVs and, and she was, she's very strong. And even then she was strong. She kept ripping out her IVs. Mm. She kept ripping out her nasal calendula, you know, the thing they put in their nose. She did not want it. Uh, it was very funny. What's um, she doing now? What's she like now? She's great. She's seven and a half months. She is, um, just has fat rolls upon fat rolls upon fat rolls. She's incredibly happy incredibly strong is in love with the dog <laughs> we had always set up in um the corner of her room there are various artistic renderings of our dog wiley <laughs> and we joked like oh we want wiley to be like her god like we want her to see wiley's a god and she absolutely does when wiley <laughs> walks into the room she only has eyes for wiley it is so it is so cute and it it's so sweet and so i guess the the first month of her life was extremely intense and in some ways traumatic. And now we finally are easing into what and have eased into what we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And also once you get a kid out of the newborn stage, uh, she, she wants to be in life now. <laughs> Newborns are like, what am I doing? What's happening? Oh, I hate this. I hate you. Like, get me out of here. Uh, but she's a baby baby. So she's smiling. She's laughing. She's trying to talk. It's, um, an, uh, an amazing amount of, of joy being with her, but intense and exhausting too. I'm so glad that there's, 
there's joy. Yeah, so much that's joy. And I, I, story. I, and I get, once I get caught up in the, you know, the details of what happened eight months, eight-ish months ago, it's, it's, um, there's just so much to talk about there. But I should say that like within a month and a half, I'll say two months, things started to even out. And we, it's amazing how quickly, if anything, it's amazing how resilient humans are in general, because considering all that happened, I feel like my husband and I got back to a pretty good emotional stasis a month or two in. Amazing. I'm so glad. Thank you. Yeah, no, she's the best. <laughs> I mean, our house is under construction and it's a mess and we'd bought a lemon of a house and that's a whole other thing. And my office has been taken over by the playroom and everything's a mess and there's a pandemic and, but, but you know, all things considered, we're doing okay. Rachel Bloom, are you a feminist? No, I don't think, I think women are idiots. <laughs> I don't think we should be trusted to drive, honestly. Um, yeah, yes, I am. That's great. How has your career impacted your feminism or vice versa? Hmm. Wow. That's a great question. I mean, I think my feminism has made me look for gaps in what the media is saying about women and their stories. And that helps me as an artist to be like, okay, what gaps can I fill? It feels like Shark Tank. You know how in Shark Tank everyone's like, I saw a gap yeah, and I'm fulfilling it with my invention? Yeah. That's what I think writing is or should be. It's where do you see a gap and you want to fill it? Um, and what, what stories haven't been told? That's the best form of writing. And then in the case of the nanny, it's like, I see a gap and more people aren't talking about the nanny. <laughs> <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> this is my last question and it's a question that we ask all of our guests on this show and that question is what you watching it is a broad pop cultural question we want to know about movies television books music music videos podcasts if you are consuming it pop culturally we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Rachel Bloom, what you watching? Well, podcast-wise, I'm now caught up on this podcast, Dead Eyes, by this actor, Connor Ratliff, um, which if you want to talk about vulnerable ex vulnerable stories about uh, specifically acting, uh, that's what this podcast really is. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it involves um, getting cut from a part uh, about 20 years ago. Is it fiction or real? It, it is real. And it's a mm. great, great podcast. Um, I just finished watching The Great. Mm. Was, oh, I heard it's really good. It was really good. It was really, really, really good and really entertaining. Um, and really says like, yeah, fuck historical, historical accuracy. And you're like, great, I don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, I um, In doing research for a project uh, just yesterday, in one day, I watched the pilot's for Homeland, mm -hmm. Alias, and Buffy. Look out. To do research uh, for something that I'm, like, working on. Um, so I recommend all those. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what are we starting? My husband and I are about to start season two of Pen15. Um, so good. Oh, we watched all of Padma Lakshmi's show, Taste the Nation. 
I loved that show. Great. I love that show. I really I want to make that indigenous Thanksgiving. I know. Me too. It's really, really, really good. And it it uses again, like using food as a jumping off point to talk Mm -hmm. about um I mean culture. And And to talk about how immigrants are great. Yes, and and what it means to be an American. Um and then the other night, my husband and I watched the movie Network. We'd never seen it. Are you mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore? Yes, but you know what? And now I understand the context of that. When you (laughs) say a a man who is mentally ill, who is being used and manipulated by a TV network to get ratings. It's a fantastic movie. You are such a delight, Rachel Bloom. This hour has literally sped by at the speed of light. I can't believe it. I um, am so thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you. And it has been a delight. It's a delight here. And now I'm off to get a COVID test, I guess. Oh, Oh my gosh. You're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I love it. Callie and I are going to take the briefest of breaks. When we come back, I'm going to ask Callie, and Callie's going to ask me, what What you watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Hello, hello. Callie. Hey, hey, hey. We just spoke with Rachel Bloom. Uh, what a talent, right? I love it. I, I miss that show so much. I know. It's really good. There's a lot of razzle-dazzle in that show. A lot, of, a lot of work went into it. Yeah. And now is the part of the program where I ask you, Callie Watts, what you watching? 
what I've been watching. Um, I started watching Big Sky, which is um, an ABC show I'm watching on Hulu. Okay. What's that? I've never heard of it. It's got um, Ryan Philippe and then two people I had never heard of. And um, <laughs> it the first episode ending was a shock hair. So Ryan Philippe and the, there's two other um, there's his two other women that he works with. One's his wife, and they are private investigators, and they start um, investigating the disappearance of a bunch of women in Montana on um, truck stops. Hmm. And um, it's getting some a lot of heat though because. Uh, from uh, Native and Indigenous women because there's so many um, Indigenous and Native women that go missing and are kidnapped in Montana. And then they, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, putting any light on that, they have focus on white women. So that's pretty whack. And so there was like a big, um, they penned a letter, um, the Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council and Cushata Tribe of Louisiana. And the Global Indigenous Council, Council. they penned a letter to the ABC execs saying the disproportionate majority of missing and murdered women in Montana are indigenous, a situation replicated across Indian country, which has made this tragedy an existential threat to Native Americans. To ignore this fact and to portray this devastation with a white female face is the height of cultural insensitivity, made even more erroneous given the national awakening of the need for racial justice. Um, and the, the execs read the letter and they said um, that they had meaningful, eye-opening conversation and that they are going to work with indigenous groups to bring people, bring attention to this important matter. And so I'm not sure what they will be doing to rectify that, but yeah, at okay. least they listened well, and acknowledged. And then on the other side of the coin with it is it's getting praise for diversity because it is the first, uh, one of the women in it is the first non-binary series regular on primetime TV. Well, what do you know? Jesse James Keitel. And she is really good. There was a very, um, very emotional shower scene. I think it is in episode two. But it's, it's I, I, from the commercials, I thought it was going to be a bullshit, shitty show. And I don't really like Ryan Philippe, but it's actually better than I thought it would be. Cool. It sounds like they're making moves to be even better. Yes, I liked that. And then um, The Mandalorian. You know, I just watched Baby Yoda. That's really all I care about. Except the most recent episode had Rosario Dawson in it. She's a Jedi. Cool. She was amazing. It was the best episode yet. It By the end of the episode, it seems like... She's only in that one episode. Maybe she'll be back later. I'm hoping she gets a spinoff. Nice. That is my idea. I'm still overstimulated by the idea of Rosario Dawson and Cory Booker in a world of love. I know. That is one hot couple. I know. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about is this hilarious horror comedy I saw called Uncle Peckerhead (laughs) on Amazon. Okay. It is was so funny. It's about a band that gets their first tour and um their tour van gets repoed and so they have to get find another van to tour. And they ended up picking up this roadie so they can use his van and it's like this crazy random dude and they're like, Okay, I guess you are a roadie now. 
And he turns out to be a maniac man eater at midnight. And but like <laughs> with some morals. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> it is such a funny movie. Really good gore. I was so here for it. Nice. And what have you been watching? I'm so glad you asked. Well, the first thing that I watched was, you know, I've really been pining away for live performances, especially rock shows, because rock shows give me life. And um, I was so happy to learn that one of my very favorite rock stars of all time, Patti Smith, was doing a live stream concert on a platform called Veeps.com, V-E-E-P-S.com. She performed on the Friday after Thanksgiving because that is Jimi Hendrix's birthday. And um, she did sort of a, a, a short set to celebrate Jimi Hendrix. And it was so good and very intimate. And there was really high quality um, camera work where you could, you know, like they were zooming in on her. And then she was also performing with her daughter, Jessie. And, um, you know, like you could see Jesse and you could see her playing and you could see Patty playing. And it was all, you know, like it was it had all of the the atmosphere that you would want in an intimate show and was a live stream. You know, people could, you know, like there was a chat if you wanted to get in there and it was only ten dollars, which is a lot uh, cheaper than going to an actual Patty Smith show. <laughs> yeah, it's it was well worth it. And uh, I noticed that coming up on veeps.com is another one of my very favorite performers who has also been on this show. Murray Hill mm. is Murray Hill is doing his annual Christmas show on veeps.com this year. And um, there's tickets at a whole different range of prices. They start at $20, but if you want swag, like there's, t-shirts and enamel pins and like all different cool holiday items that you can tack on to your ticket price if you want to actually buy swag and then the show is streaming um starting on december 12th ah. um for a while i think it's it's playing at least for a week and so um i think it's like at at eight o'clock that's showtime on a number of of different days yeah showbiz mm -hmm. um you can just because we're still on lockdown doesn't mean that we have to miss out on our cherished holiday traditions. And one of my most cherished holiday traditions is Murray Hill's Christmas show. I'm glad that I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to tune in to veeps.com to check that out. That sounds awesome. Starting on December 12th. Um, something else holiday related that I saw that I actually really enjoyed was a film called happiest season on Hulu. Um, this film, I, I've been hearing buzz about it for a while because it was already going to make history as the first big holiday romantic comedy from a major Hollywood studio about a same-sex couple. This movie is directed by Clea Duvall, and it was also co-written by Clea Duvall. And it stars Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis as a lesbian couple who go home to uh, Mackenzie Davis's, the, her character's name is Harper, and they go back to Harper's family uh, for Christmas. And um, Abby, who's played by Kristen Stewart, is planning on proposing to Harper when they go home to visit her family. But then on the way there, she finds out that Harper actually isn't out to her family yet. Ooh. And so all those plans get derailed because... Um, 
Abby has to suddenly pretend like she's not gay while visiting her partner's yeah. I read the review of the this on Bust, and it seems really good. It was surprisingly good, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Happiest Season, it was all scheduled to come out, you know, in theaters before COVID, and then they decided to release it on Hulu instead, and I believe it came out over the Thanksgiving holiday, and I was just reading in Variety that Happiest Season broke premiere records for Hulu. Oh, whoa. It, it had the best viewership for any original film ever in the history of Hulu wow. on its opening weekend, and it attracted more new subscribers than any other previous film they've ever aired. Great news for lesbians. They're going to totally put them up in front and center in movies now. I think they can get it. Time get to- that happiest season money. Get it up there. I know. I'm so happy that it did so well. I love when a woman directs and writes her own project and it comes out a winner. I love it. Making us all look uh, great. (laughs) I know. And Kristen Stewart, you know, a lot of people talk shit about Kristen Stewart because of those Twilight movies. I have always enjoyed Kristen Stewart's acting. I'm not ashamed to say it. I thought she was great in that Runaways movie. Oh, yeah. She was good in that. Yeah, like and and I read all of the Twilight books and went to all the movies and enjoyed them. So there, I said it. <laughs> Live your truth, Emily. <laughs> and speaking of Twilight, actually, um, I watched a different vampire movie since last we spoke. And like what you were watching, this is also a horror comedy. It is on Netflix. It was released October second, and it's called Vampires versus the Bronx. <laughs> all right. It's- it's a comedy horror. It was directed and written by this guy named Oz Rodriguez. And it's about a group of black slash Dominican teenagers in the Bronx who realize that uh, a nest of vampires has been invading their borough and, and uh, killing off their beloved neighborhood uh, friends and icons. And it's really, it's very cleverly done because the vampires are in the guise of white people gentrifying the Bronx. And so, so the vampires are metaphorically white gentrifiers who are taking over their salons and their bodegas and their other stores and just, and pricing everybody out. Ah. And they're also literal vampires because they are actually sucking blood <laughs> vampires. So the white people are both cultural vampires and literal blood sucking vampires. And it's very funny. That sounds cute. One of my favorite scenes, like they're trying to like get all their stuff together to fight the vampires. And one of the kid goes to his auntie's kitchen and he grabs um, garlic flavored adobo seasoning. <laughs> And he actually uses it to fight vampires, and it's so funny. And there's actually really good um, – there was a cool cameo in there by Zoe Saldana, and um, Kid Mero from Jesus and Mero oh, is in nice. it. Oh, nice. I love him. As the bodega owner. There's, like, a lot of good people in it, and it's very funny. When will we get them as boy du jour? Someday. If you're hearing us, Jesus and Mero, get at us, because we want to talk to you for the magazine. and of course the final thing i've been watching is the majestic pop tarts patreon page 
Um, we are using a Patreon uh, membership program to raise money to keep Bust alive. And we are hoping that you will help us in this endeavor. Um, Callie and I have put together a whole assortment of goodies over at patreon.com slash Podcast, And with uh, help from our girl gang at Bust, we have been um, making show notes for every single episode of this podcast. We're getting close to 100. We have, we're in the high 90s now. And for every show, we have listed everything that everyone has been watching, Callie and I and all of our guests, and they're all listed with links. So if you're wondering, what should I watch next? Or if you forget if the name of Uncle Peckerhead. <laughs> if you forget Uncle Pe- Peckerhead, if you are wondering, what should I watch next? during this pandemic that is keeping us all still inside, you can just go over to the show notes and find out what other people who you know and love have been watching and watch that. We also have other freebies. We have amazing exclusive content like our episode with Big Frida. We have care packages that we just sent out to our highest level donors. You could get a Zoom chat with Callie and I. There's so much over there. If you just click on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. It's also a great gift if you want to buy someone a patronage for us. If you want to sponsor us in someone else's name, we would certainly appreciate that as well. Um, and now at this juncture, I would like to say a big thank you. Thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. Muy caliente. And, of course... Thank you to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? No. <laughs> but you can email us. I'm at Emily Rems at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at Bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Wrapping our arms around each other, kissing passionately. Slowly, I come towards you. You wrap your hands around my waist. Silent, but yet as closely, my arms on your shoulders, gazing into your eyes. Suddenly, you stop. Bend forward and kiss me. I return the kiss. Our mouths slowly open. We kiss passionately now. Our tongues touch. Our arms and hands are involved. Love encased in lust. And passion has And many more. On this night. Forever.